So this morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians. It's from chapter 15, which is on page 1156 in the Church Bibles. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 8 and then skip into verse 50. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. And then picking up from verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we're here this morning, Apostles' Creed number five. Um, he descended to the dead, and we're focusing on the third day he rose. And I've got a three-point alliterated sermon for you this morning. We are alliterating on the letter V. Now, that's a perfect letter to alliterate on for the resurrection, isn't it? He went down, and he came back again. The bounce-back king. The letter V. So we're going to look at three sections. Firstly, we're going to see that this is a perfectly valid conclusion to reach. If you're reviewing um, historical documentation, if you're looking for evidence, then as you review the evidence, to conclude that Jesus came back from the dead is a perfectly valid conclusion to reach. Most serious scholars, whether they believe in Jesus or not, would agree that it is a valid conclusion to reach. So ignorant people might think that we're, we're one, one sandwich short of a picnic, a couple of anchovies short of a pizza, we might have a wire loose or a fuse missing. But um, if you review the data and the evidence, um, it isn't. It is a very clear and valid conclusion to reach. So we're going to have a little look at that. Secondly, we're going to see that it's a vital truth. The resurrection is a vital truth for Christian believers. Without the resurrection, I'd go as far as to say, because I'm in, in line with Paul here, I'll go as far as to say we have no gospel. 
without the resurrection being true. It is a vital truth. And thirdly, we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a vivid illustration. What happened to Jesus will happen to you and me if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds quite interesting to me. Are you interested this morning? Um, a valid conclusion, a vital truth, and a vivid illustration. So firstly, let's look at this valid conclusion. Now, let me tell you a little story about Albert Henry Ross. Now, Albert Henry Ross, very little is known about Albert Henry Ross. He was a very private man. Um, we know that in about 1910, he um, got a job working for Lever Brothers in their marketing department. And in World War I, he ended up in MI7. I've heard of MI5 and I've heard of MI6. I've never heard of MI7, have you? Anyway, he was in it. Military intelligence, that famous oxymoron of military intelligence. Uh, military, that's quite funny if you think about it, but okay. Um, <clears throat> military intelligence seven. He worked, uh, it seems, in 1917 on some of the first bombing raids that the British Armed Forces ever did. So he had quite an interesting war career. But after World War I, he went back into his secular career, where he became an executive uh, for various companies, marketing and advertising. But alongside his secular job, he had a kind of part-time job of being a writer. And he wrote in his time seven books. Six of them have virtually been completely forgotten about. But one of them became a seminal text for Christians in the 20th century. And uh, what Albert Ross was a, he was a cynic. He didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly. Um, and these claims of the resurrection, he really wasn't taken by. So he set out to look at the historical documents, the four Gospels, early Christian writing and secular writing of the time, Josephus, Josephus and others. And he set out to look for inconsistencies in the Gospel account. And he set out to look for another explanation, another credible explanation as to what happened to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because clearly the body has disappeared. Nobody knows where the body of Jesus, he was died, he was crucified, his body was taken to the tomb, and then it disappeared. So he looked for a credible explanation. He reviewed all these documents and the texts, <coughs> and as he was doing his research for this book, he came to a different conclusion. He came to the conclusion, a bit like a Sherlock Holmes type thing, when I've eliminated everything that's impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So he came to this conclusion that the only serious explanation that explains the facts as we have them documented in very clear documented uh, literature is that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. Albert Henry Ross published his book, click, and it's called Who Moved the Stone? Now most of you uh, won't recognise the name Albert Henry Ross because he was a very private man. He wrote all his books under this... Uh, pseudonym of Frank Morrison, and if you read Who Moved the Stone, this is a 1962 copy, it's been reprinted many times, um, you won't find a biography of him, because he didn't want it to be about him, he wanted it to be about what he was writing about. And uh, in his book, chapter 8, the key, key one really, he looks at all the possible explanations as to why the body might have disappeared, he does a means, motive, opportunity sort of analysis, who was it that wanted to move the body, did they have the opportunity to do it, no they didn't. Who wanted to keep the body? Did they have the opportunity? Yes, they did. So it's all the other way on. 
Oh, everything was mitigating to keeping the body in the tomb, yet the body disappeared. And then he went on, probably uh, most powerfully, the evidences in the lives and changed lives of believers. So there's a chapter here on um, the life of Peter and how his life was changed by the resurrection. And probably more importantly, the life of uh, Jesus' half-brother James, how he was changed completely by it. And, of course, the life of Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle was anti-Christian. He was anti-Christian with a passion. What turned him round? Well, he met with Jesus. He states in 1 Corinthians 15, he met with the resurrected Lord. So that's who moved the stone. And that's the basis, the basis of most resurrection studies today. If you go online, by the way, there's loads of evidence. Loads of people talking about it. They're using this as their basis. And there's very little by way of cynical or counter-argument because it's very difficult. I, I searched quite long and hard to find a good article that's cynical about the resurrection. Now, I know most people in the world are not bothered so maybe they're not looking at it. But the, the one article I did find that was cynical, the argument was, well, this doesn't happen, does it? That, that was it, really. It, it's, just, it's just a ridiculous claim. People don't spontaneously leap out of graves. Um, you know, it, it doesn't happen, was it? Um, well, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is unique. What do you not understand about the word unique? So it happened, but it's only happened once. I'd agree with that. It's only happened once. And we'll talk about that a bit more later on. But that's no reason for discounting it, is it? Just because it happened once. And then, of course, he, he agrees in this cynical article, he agrees that, yes, the lives of early believers were changed. There is no doubt in his mind that these early believers really believed they'd seen the risen Lord. He says in his article that um, people won't die for a lie, but people will die for the truth. And, you know, most of these early believers, certainly the disciples, went to their death proclaiming the risen Lord. So he's got no doubt that these people really believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. Get that? They had seen the risen Jesus. They really believed it. But as he says it can't happen, they can't have seen the risen Jesus. So how is it they really believe they saw the risen Jesus? And the only explanation he comes up with is mass hallucination. Now, who's, who's been ridiculous here? Mass hallucination. He, he quotes some um, sightings of UFOs. So there are famous sightings of UFOs where a number of people have said they've seen this UFO in the sky um, and their descriptions seem similar. Well, maybe they did see some lights in the sky. Uh, maybe it wasn't hallucination. Um, maybe <coughs> there was a UFO. <laughs> maybe not. Um, but mass hallucination if you're trying to use that argument for Jesus's resurrection just think of the evidence at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 Paul quickly lists people who'd seen the resurrected Jesus in different ways at different times and once he said to over 500 people um, the way they counted then they only counted men so it's probably more like a thousand people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time and think about what we have at the beginning of Acts we have the resurrected Jesus spending how long with his disciples 40 days, 40 days, 40 days he walked, talked, taught, ate with his disciples. 40 days. And by his disciples here, most scholars think that must be at least 120 people. Probably more. Now that is some mass hallucination, don't you think? So, you know, the evidence here is stacked to the resurrection being a valid conclusion to reach. Um, I, uh, in my reading, I'll just uh, read this and then we'll move on to my second point. But uh, 
I found, as I was uh, searching around, uh, a blog at um, Wisconsin University where Jeff Hardin, who's the chair of the Department of Zoology, is clearly a Christian, he's, he's put himself up for questions. So he said, ask me whatever questions you like. So one, one student wrote this, um, I suppose it's a sceptical question, and his question is this. As a scientist, so Jeff Hardin, you're the professor of the uh, Department of Zoology at Wisconsin. Um, as a scientist, you're trained to be sceptical about extraordinary claims, and the resurrection is definitely an extraordinary claim. We'd all agree on that. On what basis do you accept this claim as true? That was the question. And I'll just read you his um, answer. Please, please follow, because I think this um, is brilliant, his answer. Um, so he says, first, I'd like to make a small correction. Uh, scientists are taught, taught to evaluate data. Being sceptical might mean that extraordinary claims need impressive evidence to back them up. That's reasonable. But if it's shorthand for no matter what the evidence, I won't believe it, then it is a disposition based upon a prior commitment. Do you follow that? People just, you know, it can't happen this resurrection, so despite the evidence, pfft. I used to have a boss at work who used to say, my mind's made up, don't bother me with the facts, which is not a bad, not a bad way of being a boss, actually. But, um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, no matter what the evidence, I won't believe it, then it's a disposition based upon a prior commitment. While a unique historical event isn't subject to scientific reproducibility, well, that's clear, isn't it, because it's unique, um, an open-minded person will find impressive historical evidence consistent with the resurrection. And then he just picks out four. He says, this includes, one, the reality of Jesus' life. Virtually all historians believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person in first century Palestine. Uh, two, the finality of Jesus' execution. The detailed accounts of crucifixion ring true based upon Roman and Jewish practices of the period, archaeological finds, and human physiology. Uh, three, the unaccountability of Jesus' body. The quickest way, I think this is really key, the quickest way to discredit the new Jesus movement would have been to produce physical evidence that Jesus had indeed remained dead. No one did this. No one did this. This does not show Jesus rose from the dead, but the stubborn fact of the empty tomb needs to be accounted for. The accounts make it extremely unlikely that the body was stolen based upon Roman practice of uh, uh, putting a seal on the grave and posting guards at the burial site. Then, fourthly, there is the incredible transformation of a group of weak, dispirited followers into a courageous core of the new Jesus movement, not to mention those with strong reasons to remain skeptic. Thomas, the doubting empiricist, Jesus, his half-brother James, who became leader of the Jerusalem church, and Saul of Tarsus, the one-time ardent persecutor of the new movement. These dramatic transformations are well explained if the people had actually encountered the risen Jesus. Now, that's very brief, I know. But you can go and research the evidence yourself, loads online. Um, I think it's fair to say that to believe Jesus rose from the dead, based upon the evidence that we've got today, is a valid conclusion to reach. That doesn't mean you believe in Jesus as your saviour. That means, I think, it's possible he did rise from the dead. But you know, as Christians, God's not left us just with valid conclusions. He's not left us just with the documented evidence. He's left us with his Holy Spirit and the gift of faith. His spirit draws close to our spirit and he testifies to us that this is true. So we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not counter to the evidence. It's in line with the evidence. But it's reinforced by the spirit's action upon our lives. And that's fantastic, don't you think? I think that's fantastic. 
So secondly, it's a valid conclusion, the first one. Secondly, it's a vital truth. Now this is where we need to go to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, um, I need you to follow me in the text. Um, I've forgotten what, what page number it was, Caroline. 11 something, 1156 is um, in the red Bibles. If you need one, they're at the side, just grab yourself one. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to read my notes because I'm, I'm in danger of waffling, so I'll read my notes. Um, <clears throat> vital truth. So look at verses 3 and 4. This is what Paul said. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So some New Testament scholars believe that's part of a very early Christian creed and if you're looking for primary things what is it that Christians believe what is it makes a Christian well Paul kind of tells us there doesn't he for what I received I passed on to you as the first importance first importance this is primary what do you need to believe to be a Christian that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures that he was buried he really died and that he, ri he, ra he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures so the resurrection is part of what Paul says is of the first importance you see that this is a vital truth and Paul really I love Paul don't you I'm sure I wouldn't have liked to have worked for him but I love the way he writes he is so logical. He just follows things through in such a, such a clear way. And he's making this argument. He, you know, the resurrection is vital. That's, that's his whole argument in this passage. The whole, whole thing's about the resurrection. Uh, in verse 17, if you look down to that, Jesus, uh, Paul says, what is it, what would it be like if uh, Christ had not been raised? And he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile and your still in your sins. The gospel states that Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man. He is the incarnate God, God in human form, the one who became the once-for-all perfect sacrifice. And in his death, there is the forgiveness of sins. There is God's mercy and the enabler of God's grace. And in his resurrection, there is the hope of our resurrection to eternity. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. It's a question from the old age. What's the great present of the resurrection? Well, it tells us that everything else in the Bible is most likely true. Now, follow through Paul's thinking. He's asking this question, what if the resurrection didn't happen? Look at verse 14. Our preaching will be useless. We would be preaching a lie with no power or substance if the resurrection wasn't true. Can you see that in the text? And what about uh, verse 15? If the resurrection wasn't true, then Paul says, we're all liars. We're false witnesses. I'm standing up here this morning just proclaiming a lie. Dreadful thought. And then verse 16. If the resurrection isn't true, then there's no resurrection for anybody. The grave is really the end, and there is no hope for humanity. That's verse 16. A bit of a dire conclusion. But that would be the case if the resurrection wasn't true. Verse 17. We'd be still in our sins... Judgment and hell beckon. Can you see that? Can you see how he's making his argument? And all those who knew, who, who knew Christ and have died are lost, verse 18. This idea of the repair shop where Uncle Tom is looking down on his wallet being re renewed. That's complete nonsense because Christ doesn't risen from the dead, therefore no one's risen from the dead. When someone's died, that's it. <laughs> Finito. That would be the situation if Jesus had not risen from the dead. Can you see that? 
Can you see just how clear Paul is in his message? But verse 20, have a look at verse 20. Paul confirms gloriously that Christ has been raised. He lives. He is the first fruit. And we can turn that chain of logic on its head. So those verses we've just been looking at, verse 14 through to verse 18, let's turn them on the head. Christ has risen from the dead. So what does that mean? Well, those in Christ who knew and loved are not lost, but they're safe in heaven. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is. Uh, Secondly, we're saved and safe. Sin has been dealt with. Spirit and eternal life is ours. Glorious. Uh, Thirdly, the grave is not the end. It's simply a doorway to heaven and a doorway to eternal life. What is death like? It's like just stepping through a door into another room. That's true because Christ has risen from the dead. Uh, fourthly we're telling the truth the gospel is to be believed we're not liars at all Uh, faith is not useless there is mercy forgiveness and grace and the preaching of the message of christ is power unto life itself jesus rose from the dead how good is that if the resurrection is true then everything else is true can you see that the resurrection is a vital truth and i know it's hot in here i know loads of people are nodding off but can you see that Can you see the wonder of that? A valid conclusion and a vital truth. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, to heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my saviour lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory. And I'll know he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. It's a valid belief. It's a vital, sorry, it's a valid conclusion. And it's a vital truth. And thirdly, it is a vivid illustration. Click, click. Now, I've used this illustration before, and I asked this question, who's that? Very good. Yes, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, When I used the illustration before, a much younger Paul Stain put his hand up and said, Biggles, which would be incorrect. And it was Larry, remember Larry? Uh, Purchased this piano for us. It's him that gave me the right answer of Charles Lindbergh. That's very impressive, Ash, I've got to say. Charles Lindbergh. Did you know him? (laughs) (laughs) I know you're old, but yeah. So um, Charles Lindbergh became famous because... Yes, he was the first man to um, fly solo across the Atlantic. I think 1927, was that correct? 1927? Yep, and Osh waved him on his way in 1927. Uh, There he is. He flew this plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. Louis, And he... um, yeah, 30, 33 hours it took him. Imagine that, flying in that little crate for 33 hours across the Atlantic uh, from an altitude of 3,000 feet to 300 feet. He very famously th- flew around an Irish trawler asking them for the way to France, which <laughs> makes me... I don't quite know how he did that, but that's what it says in the account. Uh, and he landed in an airfield in France. Um, he'd flown across the Atlantic, and he was carried from the airfield shoulder-high as a hero. Wow! Because he'd flown across the Atlantic. Hands up if you've flown across the Atlantic. I have. Yeah, look at that. Lots of people have flown across the Atlantic. Now, were you carried shoulder high from the airport as a hero for getting across the Atlantic? 
No, I wasn't. Once I had to stand in an immigration queue for nearly two hours, flashing my gold card, and it didn't seem to work. I was just told to uh, stand in this queue and wait. Two hours. Uh, that, uh, that's not the way you treat someone who's just flown across the Atlantic. I mean, Charles Lindbergh was carried shoulder high from the... Um, what, what, so why was he carried shoulder high and we're not? Because he was the... He was the first. He was the pioneer. Now, why is that an illustration for Jesus? Because, friends, he is the first. He is a pioneer. We're told he is the first fruits, the forerunner. Jesus rose from the dead... And he's the first person ever to do it in the way that he did it. Now, this is where we just need to focus just for a moment. Um, I've, I've, I've told you I've been doing lots of research online. And there's lots of debates. There's loads of debates on these things. And there was a debate between someone who believed in the resurrection and someone who was cynical. And the guy who was cynical said, but what's, what's so special about Jesus' resurrection? Wasn't Lazarus raised from the dead? Wasn't the widow of Nain's son raised from the dead? And if you think about it... Um, Thousands of people every day in those hospitals around the world, uh, people have stopped breathing, and if nothing happened, they would be dead. In fact, they are dead, but in comes the crash team, CPR, on goes the defibrillator, boom, they're brought back from the dead. So it's happening all the time. So what's so special about Jesus? Why are you saying he's the first? Well, because all those people, other people that have come back from the dead, come back to this life. They come back to mortal living. They come back to a perishable body. Lazarus, by the way, according to Christian tradition, uh, lived another 30 years after his resurrection, and he became a bishop in Cyprus. But then he died. All those other people that come back to dead from life come back to, as John Newton called it, the land of the dying. That's us. We're all destined for death. We're all destined for the grave. Jesus was the first one to be raised imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15. He was raised to his immortal body. And Jesus lives and he's lived forever. And there's a man in heaven, there's a human in heaven called Jesus who is alive. He rose from the dead to his immortal resurrection body. Recognisable, but different. Can you see? Jesus is the first. No one yet has been risen, has risen from the dead like Jesus. But what happened to Jesus is a vivid illustration as to what's going to happen to you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this takes us back to this series. Remember this? A year or so ago, Heaven's Above, and we looked at what happens when a Christian dies. And we follow the pattern of Christ. What happened when Christ died? Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 30, uh, 46. Um, his last utterance from the cross was, any takers? The last thing Jesus said from the cross? <laughs> it was, into your hands, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then says Luke, the medical man, remember Luke was a doctor, he breathed his last. So that's death. That's the medical definition of death when someone stops breathing. So what did he do just before he died? He committed his spirit to his Father. So where was Jesus spiritually when his body went to the tomb. Answer with his father. Really important. Spiritually speaking, Jesus was in heaven with his father. Uh, another verse to prove that. What did he say to the uh, thief um, on the cross next to him? Today. Today, you're going to be in paradise with me. How could that be true if Jesus was going to be in the grave for three days? That's a spiritual 
exclamation, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So at the point of his death, Christ's spirit went to heaven to, with his father. Got that? And his body went to the grave. Now a vivid illustration of what's going to happen to us. What happens when a Christian dies? Where does his spirit go? To heaven. Spiritually speaking, when my father died in 2012, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, when he died, when he breathed his last, his spirit went to heaven. As Paul says, absence from the body together with the Lord. Spiritually speaking, he's in heaven. But his body is in the grave. I could go and dig it up. His body is there. His bones are there. That's what happens when a Christian dies. And we have this picture in Hebrews, by the way. Uh, I guess it's... Um, just an illustration, but Hebrews talks about the perfected saints in heaven. The, sp the perfected spirits in heaven, sorry. And in chapter 11, we've got this idea that people are kind of watching in and they're cheering from the stands. You know the passage. Um, and it talks about these perfected, saint, uh, perfected spirits with Jesus in heaven. So spiritually speaking, believers are there in heaven. But then what happened to Christ? His spirit goes to his father. And then what happened on the third day? At break of dawn, the son of heaven rose again. Oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ is king. On the third day, there was a merging of his spirit with his resurrection body. Recognizably the same, because everyone knew it was Jesus, but different. It's his immortal body. So what's going to happen to us Christians? We die, our spirit goes to heaven, our body goes to the grave, and then we're told at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus returns, what's going to happen? There's going to be the resurrection of the dead. And those perfected spirits from heaven are going to mess and merge with a resurrected body. Have we got the verse, the click through to the verse? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Time's gone, so I won't... Uh, Go away and read about it. Think about it. But I'll tell you, every cemetery will be turned into a commentary to the life-saving, death-defeating power of the living God. Think of that day. Think of that day when the graves are opened and the Christians are rising from the grave and there's going, to be a, there's going to be a prayer meeting and a praise party at the Stapleford Cemetery. There's going to be some catching up going on up there, isn't there? There's going to be some catching up. Every cemetery will be turned into a commentary to the life-saving, glorious power of the death-defeating God made possible in Christ. So what happened to Jesus is a vivid illustration of what's going to happen to us. He's the first. He's the forerunner. He's the only one to go that way. He died. His spirit went to heaven. His body went to the grave. And then on the third day, his spirit messed and merged with his resurrection body. He rose from the grave. And he lives. He's the first, the forerunner. But on, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that come his second coming, that's going to happen to everyone who believes in Christ. Our spirits are going to be safe in heaven. It's going to be glorious. But God's not finished. Salvation is more than just spiritual. His salvation is physical and spiritual. It's a complete salvation. And on that day when Jesus returns, we will rise again. Glorious, wonderful. Now, it all feels like science fiction, doesn't it? Why? Because it's beyond our experience. It's beyond our experience. That doesn't mean, friends, like the resurrection, that doesn't mean it isn't true. The Bible will tell us very clearly it is true. So there we have it. 
and the resurrection. We believe, as Christians, we believe that on the third day he rose again. It's a valid conclusion. It's a vital truth. And it's a vivid illustration. Thank God for his word. Thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God for his resurrection. Let's stand to